Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and uh, begin our time together. Let me pray for us. We'll be covering uh, core values uh, part three. And um, I think the plan is to do that this week and then next week have a Sunday school, which will be our last Sunday school before the series, um, where we'll break out in the elective Sunday school classes. And um, I think what I'm going to do next week is us have a, an update prepared for how do these things fit together um, in regards to our church? What's going on with things like community groups, discipleship groups? What's the current configuration? What are we doing uh, to pursue some of the things that we've seen in the core values and um, have some conversation about that? So let me pray for us, please. Father, thank you so much for this new day where the sun is risen and your faithfulness has been again declared in your glory throughout all the world, where there is no place that the speech of your glory is not heard and the words are not understood. And Lord, it's to our um, chagrin that we don't pay more attention and are not more enchanted with your presence throughout the world and all around us. And so we pray your help to be attentive to you we pray for your glory to spill out into the earth, even as the sunlight is spilling over the tops of the trees this morning and over the mountains and that from the north and the south and the east and the west, that people will awake today in, who are spiritually dead and may hear the good news of the kingdom and be awakened to new life and to a new way of living. And so we pray for your church throughout the world, the suffering church, those who are in prison, uh, in physical bars, in places of persecution, in fear of their families, life and death. We pray for those who are in prison with physical afflictions and are bound at home or in nursing homes or in hospitals that um, are not able to gather with your people and who feel the physical burdens of this body of flesh. We pray for those who, Lord, are ready to pass into the next life, Lord, that you would help them to, to, to cross the rivers of waters of death uh, without fear, that there would be a firm footing under them as they swim across that river and that you would remove from them the fear of darkness and of nihilism. And Lord, as they open their heavenly eyes in your presence, that their joy would be fulfilled, even, even some who will pass into that place today. And so we ask, please be with us as we, uh, as we think about the world and the nations, as we think about church planting, as we think about serving our community. We please ask for your help as we look at your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, love God, build the church, reach the world. We're under core value number three, reach the world. And uh, I was thinking on the way here this morning, one of the, one of the um, interesting things to do is to analyze a church, the history of a church, and try to find out what kind of a typical category it is in and what kind of histories have affected it to, to be where it is. And there's a, a book, and I'm not remembering the name of it this morning, but basically take some of the strengths and weaknesses of different church types and personalities and 
um, looks at what, what, what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, and then kind of gives a label to that. Like here's, here's what um, essentially the church, where their strengths and weaknesses are. And I was thinking about that this morning. And as we, as uh, Tyler and I read that book a few years ago and talked about our own church um, and the history of our church and the preaching and our strengths, our weaknesses, um, it struck me again this morning that we're known as basically as an introverted church, um, by and large. That's, you know, it's a little stereotypical, but it doesn't mean we're introverted in the sense of the, the ordinary. But there's a lot of focus about the inner person, about the spirit, about one's relationship with God. So one of the big emphases over the years has been core value number one about loving God, pursuing God, knowing God. Um, and some of that is, and, and there, by the way, churches on the other end of the spectrum that don't put a lot of emphasis on that, but they are an active church, they're a discipling church, or they're serving in their community. I mean, every church has its strengths and weaknesses. And I think as we go along here, just in analysis and where we um, need to improve and even ask questions about why are we this way? What are some ways we can grow biblically? Um, again, that first category, I think, is a place of strength for us. That second category, I think, has become a growing strength to us as far as discipleship and thinking about what that means and what we've implemented over the last several years with discipleship groups and even community groups is an attempt to make and mature and equip and serve the church. Um, when I come to this third category, I still feel a little bit of like, wow, we, we, we are doing some things, but this is probably the area of our greatest growth. So even as I'm going through this this morning and um, reviewing it and thinking about it, I'm aware like this is one of those areas um, that I just think we have potential growth in, so I hope we'll give attention to. But we're talking about reaching the world by planting churches locally and abroad. Uh, we'll talk a little bit, if there's time, about what we have done uh, locally. We've planted two churches, one in Lewisburg and one down in West Nashville. Uh, they each have their own histories and struggles and and um, leadership changes and those kind of things, but uh, we've sought to do that. And then in planting churches abroad, we've participated in church planting works and in Zambia, supported church planters, um, done some things overseas. We presently have uh, the, uh, well, I won't name them all now because I'll have to think about whose names I should say and where they are or not. But we've got folks in, in Turkey. We've got folks in Cambodia. We've got folks uh, in um, Belgium. And we've got a young lady in Ireland and Part of what they're doing is discipleship, and part of what at least some of them are doing is moving toward and supporting church planting, that kind of thing. So I think we've made progress in this over the years. And then this last category having to do with serving communities in mercy and justice. We're going to also talk about some of that and some of the present challenges we have in our culture, even having that conversation as Christians. Um, so those are, those are areas that we've participated in, we are participating in. And I think that out of all of these, perhaps, um, is an area of greatest potential uh, spiritual maturity. So let's look at this. So first of all, under the category of reach the world, it is reaching the world by planting churches locally and abroad. And what we're going to see here is that our core values are in a certain order for a certain reason, because one grows out of the other. Uh, if you think about love God, build the church, reach the world, if you get any of those out of order, 
I think there's a disorder of priority because loving God and loving neighbor is the greatest commandment, making, maturing, serving, and equipping in discipleship in the church, and then you move out into the world. And if you take any one of those and put those as the first priority, even good things like evangelism, service, or whatever, then things begin to be, be skewed in some very specific ways. So now planting churches locally and abroad, one of the, one of the things I'm going to clarify is the primary uh, goal and motive of preaching the gospel, as we'll see, is not to plant churches. That's the upshot of making disciples, and I'll explain more to that in a little bit. But when we're talking about planting churches locally and abroad, uh, what I did, and I just don't have time to go through it this morning, um, I went through these passages last night and got excited again about missions and uh, what God is doing among the nations, and I just don't have time. Uh, remember, I, I think I originally did this in, I think it was four weeks or something, this, this one single message. So let me give you the overview. So hold on here. In Genesis 17, we know the promise of the covenant to Abraham, I will make of you uh, the father of many nations, and for, to you kings will come, and nations will come. And there's a promise in Genesis 17, all the way at the beginning, with Abraham and what he does uniquely with the Jewish nation, that the nations, the Gentiles, are involved and will be collected and brought in under Abraham. So this this idea of missions or reaching beyond the Jewish, the walls of the Jewish nation, has been something that's been there since the beginning. Then we have in Isaiah 42, the servant poem of, of the, the servant of the Lord, who will be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And there's prophetic anticipation that he will bring justice to the nations. And justice isn't just punishment. Justice is equity. Justice is goodness. Justice is beauty. And that part of what he will do, and he also says in another place in Isaiah, it is too small a thing for you to be the redeemer of Israel only. So there are all these hints in the prophetic literature that when Messiah comes, he will bring the light and be, in that Isaiah passage, a light to the nations. And so we see this unfolding biblical story. When we come to John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, three times the term the world is used. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's not just God loved the Jews or God loved Abraham, but God loves the world. He sends his son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For the, he came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There's this like global universal perspective, even in John 3, that he comes that the world may be saved. So in the world is not just the limited Jewish world or the world of the elect. The world has this kind of globalization to it that he's, um, he's referring to there. Then we find in Matthew 28, go and make nations. All authority has been uh, given to me in heaven on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things whatsoever I've taught you to obey. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But at the commission of Jesus, he's like, now go make disciples. And we're going to see there's a significant shift here because for thousands of years, the emphasis has been we've got the truth. We are here. We are in the land. We are in Jerusalem. We have the temple. We have the sacrificial system. We have the presence of God, Yahweh, among us. And for the Gentiles to come, they have to come to Jerusalem to see the light. And now for the first time, Jesus is actually sending them out and saying, now go and make disciples. And so there's a missionary movement that is begun with Matthew 28, unlike anything in all of human history at this point. 
Go and make disciples. Jesus makes this clear in John, or excuse me, Acts 1, verses 6 through 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And that's essentially then as that's the framework for the book of Acts. That's chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, where they go to Jerusalem, Judea, the larger area, then into Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, which to them means Rome. And the book ends with Rome, which is the center and seat of the then known civilized world. And so they are obedient, but they have to go in order to be obedient to this commission. So it's not, again, go tell them to make their way back to Jerusalem. It is go, and as they go, churches are planted, people are settled there, the presence of Jesus is with them, the new Mount Sinai, the new Jerusalem is established among all of these Gentile nations, and that's what's happening as in the unfolding of the book of Acts. So there's a shift under the new covenant in regards to the nations in relation to the truth and to the worship of God and the belief in Messiah. It used to be come and see. The, the God of glory, come and see the, the redeeming God, come and see his sacrifices, come and convert and proselytize and become Jewish and be circumcised and come under the ceremonial law and come and then three, four times a year, come in and bring your sacrifices, come and do this. Suddenly all of that is decentralized. It becomes a populist movement where the gospel is going out and is now not come and see, but go and tell. And so that's a major thematic shift between the Old and New Covenant that continues even to today. And that's why Jesus says in, uh, to the, the woman at the well, the time is coming where neither on this mountain or that one will, they, one will they worship, but those who will worship him will worship him in spirit and truth for such the Father is seeking. So, so that's changing in, in that that time happens, so it's not the mountain, Mount Gerizim in Samaria, it's not uh, in, in Jerusalem, it's not the temple future or past uh, in Jerusalem, but now go and make disciples becomes this then theme that Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians, for you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in you, God's glory in the churches. And so now what we have is all of these local outposts of gospel believers who are brought into the kingdom, and that's done throughout the nations. And that's been, that's been the nature of the gospel, of the new covenant, and of missions from the day of Jesus's resurrection. So that's what's unfolding. This is what Paul calls in Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. And also, if you move back into chapter 2, it's a mystery made known that you who were once Gentiles according to flesh, you were separate from the covenants of promise, you were separate from the people of God, the commonwealth of Israel, and there were then in Christ, you, you who are far away were brought near uh, so that there's one new man in Christ, so that there's no, neither Jew nor Gentile. And then he gets into Ephesians 3. This is the mystery that the Gentiles should be partakers of this, this mystery hidden from long ago, but now made known to you in the gospel. And so there they are in Ephesus, not pining to go to Jerusalem to be circumcised and, and made genuine, but there they are sitting in Ephesus as God's people and are made one with the commonwealth and with the promise and the people of God and the state of, of true Israel um, that is the mystery that is made known. So the mystery is this, by and large, go and tell rather than come and see and come and become a part of this. Uh, Jesus is coming to you, bringing to you the gospel uh, by his spirit, by his messengers. And right where you are is established the kingdom of God 
among the Gentile nations, go and tell. So then that's what comes down to planting churches locally and abroad is about going and telling the gospel, people believing, assembling together. And then when they assemble together, they become a church. Now, what we find then is a bit of a case study in Acts 14. If you'll turn there with me, please. In Acts chapter 14. So that's a big, you got about an hour's worth of lecture there. That's a, I'm sorry I didn't have time to turn to all the passages, but that's, that's kind of a biblical theological motif of the unfolding of the kingdom of God from come and see to go and tell. Now, in Acts chapter 14, uh, and I think a, pro a problem with any singular passage in the book of Acts, making it the paradigm for anything is just problematic. So that's why I'm calling this a case study uh, to preach from this text and say this is the way it must be done and. You know, it's the law of the, Mer uh, the, the uh, Medes and the Persians. It can never be changed. It's just not the way the book of Acts works. But here's a way, at least descriptively, that Luke tells us of what happens in the, um, to, to see churches planted. We're going to see there's a specific order. In Acts chapter 14, beginning with verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and as an upshot from that, had made many disciples. So there's preaching the gospel, making disciples. Then they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, where they had previously been, where they had previously been and preached the gospel and made disciples. Now they're returning to those places where there's gospel-believing disciples. Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples. So they didn't go back and, and were unconcerned about their own spiritual growth. They wanted them to be strengthened. They were encouraging them to continue in the faith. So it wasn't once saved, always saved. Don't ever think about it again. And, and don't worry about how you're living and don't worry about anything. They came back and it's like, look, continue in the faith. Be encouraged. Continue in the faith. And I wasn't knocking uh, eternal security or anything like that. My point is he didn't get them in the door of salvation and then was unconcerned about them. Uh, that's my point. So he goes, he, he encourages them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Uh, so that's, that's what encouragement and, and uh, um, an exhortation of perseverance says, like, it's like, you're, you're going to suffer a lot for the kingdom. All right. So be encouraged. <laughs> Verse 23, when, okay, so remember the, the, the order here is they've preached, they've made disciples, they encourage and strengthen them. Verse 23, and when they had appointed elders... For them, that is disciples that had been previously converted, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to, to the Lord in whom they had believed. And let me just point out a couple of things that Luke is saying here. There, there, there's a, a good body of literature from almost every church tradition that says what constitutes a biblical church. Well, you've got to have this. You've got to have this. You've got to have got that. You've got to have leadership. You've got to have duly appointed elders. You've got to have the Lord, the establishment of the Lord's Supper. You have to have the expository preaching of God's word and whatever. And what we find here is that Luke just simplifies it. Is the church already existed at this point. They established elders in every church, which means that the church preceded elders. I think one of the mistakes that we made early on, um, I, I it was my fault, uh, which most of the mistakes early on were mine, a little less so over time, but I, there's still a lot mine. 
But it was that we can't have the Lord's Supper or baptisms or do anything until there's duly properly ordered elders. And here Luke identifies them as already being churches. And it's what Paul says to Timothy is to set in order the things that are lacking. So churches without elders are still churches, but they're not yet ideally established. You need leadership there. And so the order is, if you watch through that, verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So here's the basic order is the preaching of the gospel. That's evangelism. That is that is making, uh, declaring the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. When people believe, as we saw last week, and they repent and have repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they enter into discipleship. Discipleship is always in the New Testament linked with, uh, not always, is inextricably, inextricably bound with baptism. Go and make disciples, baptizing them. So baptism and disciple um, go together. Not every, not every single instance of the use of the word has baptism with it. I didn't want to overstate the case, but certainly Matthew 28. Go and make disciples. So disciples are always baptized, I believe. Um, that's the mark of discipleship. That's the entryway. That's that. That's the the um, threshold into which someone identifies himself as a disciple. And then encouraging those disciples, telling them to persevere, to encourage them to stay in the faith. So there's Christian maturity and growth and encouragement. And uh, to tell them that through many uh, tribulations, they must enter the kingdom of God. Then what we see is already there, you have what, what, what Luke calls churches. And then you have an appointment of leadership, which leadership in the churches seems to, at least to some degree, say we've got to be able to identify men, according to 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, who are sufficiently mature to be able to exercise leadership in the church. And that typically doesn't have when the whole room is just recently converted. I was like, oh, anybody want to be a leader? You know, anybody think they're... So there's some time for maturation and an identification of leadership in this completely new kind of a virgin context of all brand new believers. So they appoint leaders who will teach, equip and mature, and then commit to the Lord that church with prayer and fasting. So church planning, in this case, is a consequence of preaching the gospel and making disciples. It's not the primary goal. They didn't come into a city and say, we got we got to plant a church. That's what we got to do here is we got to plant the church. And I, I can say from experience in my own way of thinking and reading of books and talking to others, you come with the primary goal of, of, of planting a church. Your approach is going to be significantly different than coming in to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to see churches made. Those, those are just two different ways of thinking and have different consequences. And then what that church, as they are baptized and as they um, believe the gospel and are encouraged, then they're, of course, going to want to repeat the Great Commission by going and making disciples. And it's recursive in that way and repetitive if they are taught the truth. Okay, so planting churches locally and abroad, what, what we see from this, several things. First of all, planting churches is the result not the primary goal of the Great Commission. The goal of the Great Commission is go and make disciples. When disciples are made, churches are then planted, but churches are planted as disciples gather. That is the church. A church plant doesn't need a building. A church plant doesn't need um, elders uh, at first. Uh, the church plant, to make it a church plant, doesn't need all those things already established. 
uh, a church plant for there to be a group of people called the church, as we saw in this passage, is simply disciples getting together in the name of Jesus and then the planting and what happens in the growth, encouragement, and establishment of leader, leadership follows uh, in Luke, uh, in Acts 14, uh, following that. So planting the churches is a result, not the primary goal. If this isn't kept in mind, the primary driver can be, become collecting the already converted. We're going to plant a church in Nashville. And so in God's providence, that's how we did it here. <laughs> And that's how most church planters that I know of in America do it. And it goes something like this. And so I'm going to knock it a little bit. God has used it. I just think we have some rethinking to do on it. So church planning is, is often something like this. Well, we want to plant this particular style, kind, theologically of this kind of a church. Therefore, we need to go into this area and find people who have the same, who are already committed Christians who are discontent with their present churches and who have these particular theological convictions and will be a good help to us to start a church. Now, obviously, God has used that. God built our church that way. Um, but I just think that there's, there needs to be some retooling and rethinking and repraying uh, about that to say, okay, if that is our primary, and if we, we consider that biblical church planting, it, it may be time to rethink some of that. Um, now, there's all kinds of other factors, and I don't want to be either uh, critical of God's providence no too, nor too hard on how we started or how most other church planters that I know of. I'm just making the point and saying it's worth rethinking at this point. If this isn't the case, the primary driver then becomes collecting the already converted. So you find email lists, you have friends and contacts, um, as opposed to Okay, we want to see a church planted here. Who are the non-Christians that we can tell the gospel to that by God's grace might believe that we can see a new start, church started? And I can tell you, a, 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 a church of 10 new converts who weren't raised in the church, who have never believed before, who barely knew the gospel if they knew the gospel at all, that church with 10 people looks a lot different than 10 people coming from other churches who've already been in the faith 20, 30 years and who are just discontent and disgruntled with their present church life. I'm not saying one is evil and one is good. I mean, but they look very different. I mean, the conversations among those two new, 10 new converts is probably going to be very different than those two, 10 believers uh, from other churches who have studied theology all their life, have taken Bible classes, etc. Like that 10 people, newly converted, is going to be a messy situation. And probably so messy that, that one of those other families coming into that setting, unless they're prepared, is going to feel really different. And so again, I don't want to be too harsh, too critical. Um, just pointing out, that kind of church planning is, in my experience, in my knowledge of the sphere of people that I know is very rare and very challenging. And, and I don't know, maybe, maybe, I don't want to overstate it, maybe it takes a little more faith to do something and skill or, or risk and uh, uncertainty to do something like that than getting uh, the email list of disc, discontent church members from other theological tribes. But anyway, so I don't want to overstate that. So what we see here then in that situation, establishing leadership for gathered disciples is totally legit. 
one of the things that I've also seen happen with, with some of my acquaintances is like, well, anywhere the, the anywhere you take it and you can have a, uh, you can have a Bible study over here and you can have a Bible study. And so it ends up being all of these independent Bible studies where, you know, somebody is immediately uh, baptized and suddenly that's a church and there's no leadership that's ever established. There's some of that going on in Asheville in, in somebody I know in particular. And so it never actually becomes a church plan. It's just a group of relatively immature um, um, people who appear to have been baptized and believe the gospel and done all of that. But then it just kind of reminds, it remains this Bible study and elders and church planter or elders and those who are going to help them grow and mature aren't ever established there. And they just stay as these little, and, I, and I'm not saying even saying they're not churches, just saying that the rest of the, how do you love God? How do you build the church, equip and serve and mature through the stages of Christian maturity so that they can move along, establish leadership. So it, get, it gets kind of prematurely um, hindered at that kind of small part, um, part. And I'm thinking suddenly of a plant that is growing and has room to grow, but it's still in too small of a pot. You need to put it in a bigger theological pot so it can grow and mature and, and move further down the line. But when you've got then, so you can see there, there, are, there are problems. I mean, if I know anything about myself and about people in general, is we can screw about everything up. <laughs> there's just, there's not much that we can't just make go wrong. And so that's one of the downsides of this kind of more uh, pioneering view of, of uh, church planning. So here, what I'm asserting is the primary driver is preaching the gospel and I'm assuming in this case to non-Christians, for conversion by God's grace, making disciples of them so that they would be taught, instructed, and that means you need teachers and people who are gifted to instruct them in the, in the, the whole counsel of God, as, as Paul calls it in Acts 20, which then creates churches as they live life together. It should be they live life together in community. So that's my view, my understanding our approach to what church planning ought to be. Now, I have to say the two church plants that we planted, neither one of them did it. We did it this way. We had, in both cases, um, a group of people that were from a different particular um, um, geographical area, one in Lewisburg and some from West Nashville, though we, we actually were given a church building essentially from in West Nashville they said, do you want this? So we can't fit in it. And about that time, God had raised up a leader here and so several families who were willing to go with him. And we planted a church down in West Nashville, Hope Community Church, <clears throat> quite a few years ago. So we haven't actually done it this way, um, but, but I think it's something worth thinking about, praying about, and asking what the Lord would do. So the primary driver then creates churches that live life together. They're actually in living in community together. And here what we have is, uh, I think Paul's, and this is always in like, this is why I'm saying like the love God stuff of, of uh, in, in uh, build the church, like that stuff that's more like in my wheelhouse of spiritual experience and desires. When it comes to this, I just read this. I'm like, man, I am, man. I'm so immature when it comes to this kind of stuff. But notice what Paul says in Romans 15, 17. In Romans 15, uh, Romans 15, 17, he didn't say, well, I don't have time to come to Rome. Y'all already know the gospel. He says actually in chapter one, I come, I, I desire to come. I long to be with you 
so I can preach the gospel to you and see fruit born. So it's not like, well, I don't care about Christians who've been converted and have church leadership anymore. He's like, I still want to come there. But then we see the rest of his desire beginning in, in uh, Romans 15 and verse 17. He says, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. By the way, I'm doing some pre-preparation for 2 Corinthians. Um, Lord willing, it will start next week. And I'm just, again, blown away by Paul. And I'm not putting up on a pedestal near to Jesus. But I'm just telling you, if, if Paul is one of, and you've heard me say this before, Paul is one of the strongest uh, arguments. I think next to the resurrection of, of Christ, I have to be careful. In my mind, next to the resurrection of Christ, there's nothing more compelling to me as far as the resurrection of Jesus and the power of the gospel than the life of Paul. I mean, Paul is just, yeah, we'll see it in 2 Corinthians. But for him to, to do this, to suffer, I mean, just go look at, I'll give you an example. I'm reading, I'm meditating, thinking about 2 Corinthians this week. And as I was sharing with a couple of brothers, like when, when I hear like really grotesque things in the Bible, I don't just kind of register it. Like I try to reimagine it and think of myself in that situation. So I'm going through the sufferings of Paul that he lists in 2 Corinthians, his foolish boast. And I, I'm just devastated. I'm reading it. I'm like, I haven't suffered any of this, but I'm trying to. And I got to the point where like, I'm not sure this is true. Now, in my flesh, just tell you, I'm not sure this is true. How in the world could one man endure this? Like, seriously, the, the, it, and if you've never seen, just check it out. Uh, well, or don't. Um, how do I put this? I've watched enough torture scenes in movies and things like that and thought about them enough that any single instance of, of torture is enough to break me. I mean, there, there's, sorry, I'm wimping out. If we get under persecution, I'm probably going to be the first guy that breaks. I'm sorry. I know that's probably disappointing. But, but some of the things that human beings can do to one another. And, and, and so Paul talks about his fasting, fastings, his suffering, his, his hunger night and day. I mean, just the natural stuff of difficulties that he goes through. But then these like 40, 41 lashes or these 40 lashes minus one. Uh, and he does it, was it like four times? I'm, I'm really rabbit trailing here, but I'm excited about it. So it, it does have a point. Listen to this. Um, am I a better one? Am I taking like a talking like a madman? From far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings. Now just stop there. Countless beatings. I've been beaten so many times I can't remember how many times I've been beaten. And I'm thinking as I read through this passage, it's like either Paul has something empowering him to do something that I don't feel like I have, or he's a big fat liar. <laughs> and I don't think he's a liar. Countless beatings. And 
go watch a movie that has real torture in it and then say countless. Yes, like prison, like somebody with a cane or a lash where, where you can't count. I don't, I, I don't have enough fingers on my hand to even remember. And he's doing that for the sake of the gospel. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Not, not like once. Remember that one time I almost died? He's like so many times, times over and over where that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm finished with this world. And everybody like in the room is going, see you, Paul. And then he comes back. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 40 lashes. Five times. Any one time is enough to kill a human being. That's why they stopped supposedly one lash short. I mean, this, this, this isn't like, you know, your grandma's yarn yarned into a, a little whip and it's like, oh, that stings. That's, we're talking about, uh, I won't go into it because I was told I was a little too graphic last week. 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Have you ever seen a caning? I, I've seen people just beaten on the bottoms of their feet. Not even on the back, on the bottom of their feet. I haven't seen it personally. I've seen videos of it because I'm twisted that way, I guess. But he's beaten with rod. He's caned. Once I was stoned. <laughs> just once. Oh, Oh, that was the easy one. Being thrown over, they try to break your neck, they throw you down over, and then they are taking baseball size, softball size and hurling it. Grown men are hurling it at you as hard as they can. And they're pretty good aims. They've had a, a bit of practice with that. Being pummeled with that and left for dead, and then the disciples come out and go, it's kind of a funny scene. It's like, where were you during the stoning? And then they come in, and you know what he does? He gets up, and he walks back into the city. He was just stoned in. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We only read of one. You know how terrifying shipwrecks are? In the black waters, with stuff around you, and people floating and dying. We read of one three times because of his travels. He is shipwrecked, left out on the open, open waters, in the Mediterranean. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In dangers from rivers. Like crossed a lot of rivers. Almost drowned. Many times. In danger of robbers. Like in the middle of the night. There I am. Me and my companions. We see these guys. Danger from my own people. Like the Jewish people. Danger from Gentiles. <laughs> danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Man, I remember I was recounting us being at Tom Gabbard's, what was that, two, right before COVID, that 22 degree night, some of you were there, I think. <laughs> and I'm in a tent with all of my stuff, all of my gear, everything ready to go. And I had a rip at the bottom of my um, tent that was that big. And my feet hurt so bad, it nearly made me cry. It made me go down the hill, risking breaking my neck on the ice, not nearly as dangerous as Paul, to sit in my Kia all night with the heat turned on. And 
He's like, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So Paul has to endure probably not that cold in the Middle East, maybe so. But without all the special, without a Kia, without a Kia. Or boots or a tent of any sort. Well, he was a tent maker. He probably had a tent. <laughs> and apart from the other things, like if you, if you thought that was something, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Like, I don't even have that a level of anxiety for the church. And so with all of that in mind, so I came away with that. It's like, okay, let me imagine. Let me, bang, boom, boom. I'm, I'm trying to imagine one human physical being and I'm, I'm, I'm counting through and I'm reading the text. I'm watching him go through that. It takes months and months to heal. This is pre-penicillin. This is pre-antibiotic antibiotics. The fact that he survived, I mean, about halfway through, I'm like, God, just kill him. He said, for me to, to, to be apart from the body and to be with Christ is better. And most of us are like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. For him, it's like, that's a no-brainer. This is hard. But if it's good for you, Philippians, I'm willing to stick around and continue to endure it. We're like, oh, you know, most of us don't want to go. He was like, I got nothing to stay for except the church. And wait till, you, wait till we look at 2 Corinthians and we see how the church was treating him. There's something going on, Paul. There's something going on. I wish I had me a little something more of that. So it's out of that, Romans 15, here we go. There is, there's a point to all this. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And we just heard a lot of the deeds that he did in order that Gentiles might receive the word. It makes our excuses for evangelizing pretty lame, don't they? Oh, I'm a little scared. They may not like me. I might lose my job. They may not think as nicely of me. I mean, just all that sweeps away. It's like, that's, that's why I want, to, I want more of that something that Paul's got. He says, signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrim, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. There's church planning for at least the majority of people that I know to go and preach the gospel where Christ has already been named. But for him, it's I want to go where Christ has not been named, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's fountain. But as it is written, those who have never been told will see. And those who have never heard will understand. And what a wonderful thing it would be to catch some of that spirit or that dimension of the spirit from what Paul has there to tell people who don't believe in Christ and don't even know of Christ about him. This passion can be whether it's a particular nation that the gospel has not gone to, a particular people group, or even an individual person. For this, I am challenged that we should pray, equip, go, and preach the gospel. Part of the reason my particular Sunday school class, I want to stir and hold myself accountable for relational 
evangelism and apologetics to be able to engage boldly with Christians, non-Christians about the gospel. Now, we don't have time to do it here. A closer look at Isaiah 58 is a call to listen. The problem in Isaiah 58 that God is dealing with is a privatized spirituality and request for personal justice. It is me coming to church, doing the things I do, reading the Bible so that I will have a personally better life, but then it doesn't affect uh, really how they deal with other people and their passion to bring justice to other people. There's a call in verses 16, 14 to true spirituality. And it's a call to, and th this is an important thing because we're in the, the territory of justice now. You know what? Let me come back to that. But that's, let's stop at church planning. I've got 41 seconds. There's no way I can do justice. So next week, instead of me doing what I said I was going to do, we're going to come back look at part two of this and talk about even the issue of mercy and justice and, and talk a little bit even about this present age and critical theory and social justice. And okay, so how do we make our way through those waters and how do we, how do we understand biblical justice biblically? So we'll come back to that Lord willing next week. So just want to keep an eye on our time and you can see, I don't, I don't have nearly enough time to go through all that. So we're not going to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we just pause to pray and ask that the Spirit and the way that the Spirit worked in Paul, Lord, what a, what a thing you did in him. And I am uh, nearly ashamed to call myself a, a minister of the gospel in my unwillingness to suffer, to endure hard things, to put up with difficulties, to look for the path of least, least resistance. Lord, we just all pray. We humble ourselves before you, and we don't want trouble. We are not looking for it, but we pray that you would strengthen us strengthen us with your love in the way that we saw last week that would enable us to endure hardships and through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God, if that be your will. May we be more bold. May we uh, learn as a church to be more extroverted in the sense of vocal about the gospel. And for some of us, it just, it means getting into a place of, of, of being around non-Christians. Lord, uh, we can be so content just to be around uh, the people that we enjoy and we have common values with, which is a wonderful and re-energizing things, but having hard conversations, putting up with uh, intolerable uh, behavior at times. Lord, we pray for grace to uh, look for those opportunities that we have to build relationships with non-Christians and be bold in proclaiming the kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.